Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your co-host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new work from our free online publication, Etched Onyx. Please join me and co-host Melissa Collings after the reading when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. Hey, listeners. Today's show features one of our fall contest winners. But before we begin, Melissa and I would like to thank Katie McDougal and A.M. Ringwald, our prose and poetry judges, for their work in selecting the top entries. We also want to thank each writer and poet who submitted your work for consideration. We received many amazing stories and poems and appreciate the opportunity to read your work. We wish all of you continued success in your writing endeavors. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All works, stories, and poems are copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Today's story and one of our honorable mention winners is Pilots, written by Mary Carol Moore and narrated by Meredith Lyons. Settle in and enjoy. My fiancé, John, and I make our appointments on our Franklin Covey apps for the essentials in life, meals, movies, and sex. Sex happens alternate Thursday evenings and Sunday afternoons, except in Viking season. I put on a black lace nightgown while John brushes his teeth and flosses, dabs Catalyst cologne under his arms. I gave him that bottle of Catalyst two Christmases ago, and the last time I checked, it was only half empty. John buys two pairs of trousers and six button-down shirts from Sears each fall and wears a pocket protector. He smiles at people on the Minneapolis streets, chats with strangers in elevators, never raises his voice. I can set my watch by the precision of his lunch hour phone call to me. Although my friends tell me how lucky I am to be with him, I find myself staring at the men in the Catalyst ads. Maybe that explains why I took a leave of absence from my job at Medtronics, why I'm here in Paris enrolled for nine months of classes at Le Cordon Bleu. This is for your head, says Valerie, my table partner. She hands me a little white torque. Today is patisseries with Madame Blanchard in the high-ceiling classroom. We have pastry in the morning because our hands are properly cold for the dough. La viande meats every Tuesday afternoon. Sauces and plats, the main dishes, the other days. How do you stay so thin? Do you taste everything? We must taste everything. It is the rule in every course I have taken. And we eat lunch every day. It is difficult after tasting patisserie all morning, but French people never skip a meal. I'll probably live on your play. I can't gain any more weight. Did you forget to put your engagement ring back on? No, after that near miss with the dough hook, it's better to leave it off. Paris is full of light and sound. I have never been out of the States before. I share a one-room apartment on Avenue de Maine, 
near Gare Montparnasse, Valerie lives on Rue Dauphine. She shows me how to take the metro to the school and which bakery has the best morning croissants. My first morning, I buy a red copy of Plan du Paris to orient myself. I hate not knowing where I am, so I always ask directions. My French is getting better, I'm not afraid to try, and the Parisians, bless their snobbish little hearts, are willing to help me most of the time. My Minnesota blonde hair and the time I spend at Jenny Craig before this trip are an asset. The chef's course meets six hours each day, 1,300 to 1,900. The classrooms are upstairs. Long window-lined rooms, a huge mirror over the chef's demonstration counter, smells of wonderful food everywhere. I try not to eat too much when they pass the samples. Valerie is a beautiful redhead. She is serious about her work. Her parents own a bistro in Gores, and she has a job waiting. She smokes jetans, laughs with me about the other students, shows me how to fold the pastry puff dough without touching it too much with my warm palms. John sends me long letters, one every week, calls when the rates are lowest. I can see him penciling into his schedule each Sunday, call Marta. I don't tell him I haven't worn my engagement ring for weeks. I send him postcards of the Tour Eiffel and the Arc de Triomphe. Dear John, having a wonderful time. Hope you are too. Gained less than two pounds this month. French food is very balanced. Getting to know the city quite well. My French is improving by the day. Kisses, Mart. My least favorite is butchering class on Tuesdays. Six of us sit at each long stainless steel table, our knives sharpened. We face off with a different meat every month. Pork this month, lamb next. Welcome to La Viance, the instructor, Monsieur Frances says. He demonstrates sharpening the lethal-looking saboteur butchering knives until they cut across the grain of meat like butter. An elderly English woman translates, but Valerie says she misses the good jokes. I am beginning to catch on to this. Each evening, Valerie takes me for coffee after class to settle my stomach from all the tasting. She teases me about the man from South America, Ricardo. We made a pact that she'll help me if I ever want to seduce him. I write John. I dream about lemon tarts and pork roulade. I am a prisoner of excellent food. But I dream about Ricardo. I bet he doesn't even have an app on his phone for scheduling. He's always late for class. My family in Valparaiso always told me stories about France. Is that why you're here, Ricardo? Mama's family came from north of Paris. Mama escaped a cruel life by marrying Papa and moving to Chile, where the sun heats your soul. Paris is la plus belle ville du monde. I agree with Valerie on that one. Paris is heaven. Ah, but you have never traveled. If you came to see me in Valparaiso, you would not hesitate to agree. Everyone is so friendly, so gay. My papa is correct when he tells me, French women, with the notable exception of your mama, have souls as sharp as swords. Idiot. Hush, Valerie. What were you saying, Ricardo? Papa rents a small flat near the Air France terminal where he is training pilots for the year. My papa is a great pilot. He has never lost a plane and he flies the races in Chile. I wanted to see this country where Mama grew up. I'm interested in food, so I take this course while Papa works. 
Will you be a chef? No. I'll be a pilot someday, like my papa. Do you like to fly? I stare out the classroom window at the sky. Today is washed blue, pale as an artesian egg. I've never been in a private plane. Maybe I can borrow a plane this weekend, fly you to the lore. We can walk among the silent gardens of the queens and kings. Would you like this? I nod my Midwestern head. You bet. Reina, es hermoso ver mercado mi camina tu pesita pequina. Later, Val, you speak Spanish. What on earth was he saying? May queen how beautiful to follow in the path of your small footprints. Valerie exhales and delicately extracts a bit of tobacco from her tongue. Ricardo did not write this, you know. It is from Neruda. At the work table, the chatter is in French, each in a different accent. Valerie and I are the only women. Two American men from Chicago and New York are here on a scholarship, hoping for placement at Charlie Trotter's or Le Cirque. A pair of olive-skinned Frenchmen are brothers. Their father owns a two-star bistro. Ricardo has started sitting directly across from me, so we share utensils and partner for pastries. I now know three poems by Pablo Neruda. I looked them up online. Before Ricardo, I'd never met a man who quotes someone else when searching for the right answer. I would caution you that Ricardo may be one of those cold men who worships women from afar, but never gets close enough. We are walking to the metro. Our clothes reek of garlic. You were such a cynic, Val. My father could fatten a duck for foie in the time it takes this man to finish one recipe. He is an odd one, you have to agree. Odd, in French, is étrange, but I prefer différent. At night, I lie in my little bed thinking how different. Different can be good, interesting, educational. Have you ever watched how he moves his hips when he walks across the classroom? Like a dancer. I imagine him in those red cowboy boots and nothing else, except the baseball cap. What is the emblem on this cap? Yankees. I cough and wave the smoke away. Not my favorite team. He wears it to impress you. She stubs out her cigarette in a tiny saucer and counts out change for a tip. French people would never dance around things this long. They would get to sex over first. Take him to your bed. It makes more sense. I will arrange everything. Minneapolis is never this hot in May. I am dying in front of the eight-burner stove. Valerie says air conditioning is bad for the liver, and the French already have mal de foie from all that wine. We butcher, then sear our beef on high heat. I am learning entrecote, butterfly beef, rolled rump roast. We talk about the news, the weather, the stagiaire program for the student chefs. The men make ribald comments about the cow we're cutting. Valerie complains about raised income tax for living within the banlieue, the Paris city limits. I try to cut clean lines around the gristle. I must have gotten the toughest piece in the classroom. Our white aprons are soon splattered with fresh blood. If I can just get through this, the next hour is pastry, bloodless and sweet. Ricardo circles the cutting table like a pilot trying to land. I watch those hips move in rhythm to his hands. He is very good with la viande. His knives are as sharp as the chef's own. I watch him make clean slices, 
paused to stuff his ponytail under the Yankees cap. It's set backwards on his head. And today, he wears a yellow t-shirt in French slang. At break, Valerie translates. I'm not driving fast. I'm flying low. Ricardo sets another saute pan on the wolf stove, adds butter and sherry, increases the fire slowly, and I watch the fat melt. The entrecote sear noisily. I watch Ricardo's hands. I brush past him, just close enough to see his shoulders tense. After class, I offer to show him my corner of the city. Instead, we take his favorite walk, starting at Place de Concorde, through the Tuileries, past the Louvre Pyramid, and then down along the Seine. We end up at an ice cream store on Ile de la Cité. I order three boules, all different flavors. On the bridge is a trio violinist. A line of mango traces along Ricardo's chin. I reach to wipe it off, but he grabs my hand, slowly sucks my fingers clean. Meat is what we are raised on in Chile, the wonderful beef of the Andes. You like meat? I excel at meat. When I was a child, learn how to cut perfectly. Learn how to cook the beef to keep a rosy glimmer inside. Flavor of the gods on the outside. I like patisseries better. Beef can sing as it touches the tongue, as it melts in the mouth. I like things that taste sweet. I go to Jean-Louis David on Champs-Élysées and come back with long curls and startling makeup. It costs 100 euros, most of my money for the month. But when I look in the mirror, I am definitely not Minnesotan. Ricardo comes up behind me at the stove, leans over my shoulder, and pretends to look in the saucepan I am stirring. But I can tell he's sniffing my hair. I close my eyes and almost burn the roux. We pair off for me fouets, the pastry of a thousand layers. Each papery leaf is baked separately, then dusted with clouds of sifted sugar. We spread almond paste and custard as smooth as silk. Ricardo's dough doesn't rise properly, so I reach over to feel how hot his palm is. If you're too fiery for pastry, I say, cool your hands in ice water and anything will rise for you. He stares at me, pulls his hand away from the bowl of ice where I'm holding it, then goes back to sharpening his knives. I want to know the most important thing that ever happened to you when you were little. I will tell you. When I was five, you must have been cute when you were five. When I was five, my father took me on a train from Valparaiso to the mountains to visit my cousins. I close my eyes to better hear his musical accent, to imagine his soft, round face, his innocent. Men are so charming when they're innocent. On the train across from us, Ricardo says, sat a man with his pants open. The train ride was long for me, so I amused myself by watching those pants to see if anything would fall out. Did it? He frowns. That is not the point. The story. I'm sorry. Ah, uh, go on. When we got off the train, my father led me around the side of the building, stood me against the wall, and slapped my face hard. I knew not to cry, even though it hurt terribly. Never, ever cause dishonor to another man by pointing out his weakness, my father said. Did any one of your elders tell that man on the train to close his pants, that his personal parts were hanging open for the world to see? We would rather die than humiliate another man. He patted my cheek, which was hot and red from his palm. As the great Neruda says, 
Honor is everything. If we cannot live with honor, why live? I am silent. Ricardo takes a breath. I could never find that passage in El Pablo's works, but all my life I never forget my father's teaching. Valerie gets me two tickets for dinner on the Bateau Moucher, Paris's equivalent of the Mississippi casino boats. Ricardo and I go on Sunday. We eat on the top deck and watch the lights of Notre Dame as we float past. I dip a fat strawberry in champagne, eat half, rub his lips with the other half. We walk at midnight from the quay to Valerie's apartment, kiss up the five flights of stairs, pull off our clothes in the hall. I find the keys she left me, and Ricardo carries me into the tiny bedroom, my legs wrapped around his waist. Ricardo goes into the bathroom, and I hear him brushing his teeth. Suddenly, there's a clink of a bottle and the smell of a familiar cologne. Without thinking, I pull on my dress, step into the hall, and race down the stairs. Take deep breaths of the night air. Remember, I still have Valerie's key. Wait behind the wall until Ricardo comes up, then sneak back in to lock up. Thank you for cleaning the apartment, Marta, and for the flowers. Roses are my favorite. Roses are the best gift of the weekend, I'm afraid. Ricardo didn't pursue. He pursued. I ran. Like a rabbit. Valerie shakes her head and frowns. He is proud. Proud man, cold heart. My cousin Sabine married such a man. He tried to take my shirt off last time I visited. What a nightmare it is with men like that. Always watching, always wondering. Never anything a woman can count on. They are not like your Jean, who writes you letters every week. She holds up her hand, stopping my words. Listen, I know these things. A woman might come to Paris for passion, but she has to live with the packaging around it. I frown into my dimitas. Does your coffee taste funny? I thought French cooks knew not to let it boil. Ricardo skips class Friday, but he's waiting outside when I leave. I am too embarrassed to look at him, but he comes up behind me, grabs my chef jacket, pops it over my head, and folds me like a trussed chicken over his shoulder. He is not even smiling, but for some reason I start giggling. The garçons leaning against the wall, smoking their galousses, make crude remarks. I manage to wheeze out an excuse for our aborted date, think this is all too dramatic. I have to get home, I tell him, but he says the light is still good and he is taking me flying. My mother was a big fan of second chances, giving them to men, that is. Today, Ricardo does not smell like any cologne I recognize. I let him lead me to his car, and we drive to Orly, where his father's two-seater Cessna is hangered. From the air, I watch the Paris rooftops recede, watch the sea get closer. We fly over Normandy, where the best cheese comes from, the edge of Brittany, which is famous for fruits de mer. Ricardo tells me stories of Chile, how he flies that coastline too, landing on white sand beaches. I decide to prove Valerie wrong. The packaging is as good as the passion here. I eat the strawberries Ricardo brought. Feed him mushroom pâté on slices of baguette in flight. The afternoon is fine. We land at a small airport near the Loire. He has rented a car. The chateaux are impressive. We have dinner near Samur. He is instrument rated so we can fly home after dark. I watch the lights below. The star is sheeting the sky like milk. When we are just approaching Paris, I realize something is wrong. Ricardo is lost. 
We circle the industrial suburbs north of the city, my male pilot saying less and less. When I offer to help, radio the airport, put my hand on his sleeve, he slaps it away. I am concentrating, he says. Women talk when men need to think. I watch the fuel gauge. Finally, just as we're about to run out, Ricardo puts the Cessna down in a little field. He gets out, stalks into the tall grass. I sit for a few minutes, waiting for instructions. Then I reach for the handset and radio the tower at Orly. Luckily, my French is quite good by now. I'm bleary-eyed the next day, waiting for stock to simmer. Valerie is reading La Figaro. Les imbeciles, she mutters, then laughs and shoves the paper at me. An American airline has completed its study on pilots. They wanted to know why so many male pilots crash on their first solo flight. Women always radioed for directions when they got lost in the air. But men are too proud. They end up circling forever. I look over at Ricardo, slowly unrolling his knives. I feel afraid suddenly. I want to grab the newspaper and fold the article into tiny pieces. I haven't told anyone about last night, about how long I waited for Ricardo to return to the plane. But other students pause their conversation at the other end of the table to read out loud over Valerie's shoulder, relieve the jokes about Americans. Frenchmen would never get lost in the sky. I jump back when Ricardo drops a long meat knife. It clangs on the edge of the metal stovetop, scattering bits of blood. The group falls silent. He doesn't look at any of us, just carries the knife to the sink. I watch him carefully wash and dry it, test the sharpness of the blade with his thumb, then wrap it in the sailcloth pouch. Without a word, he slings his leather jacket over his chef's coat and strides out of the classroom. Break time, yells the chef just then. I turn off the heat under my pan and go out for air. We don't see Ricardo after break. I finish the beef solo, get high marks, have coffee with Valerie, and take the metro three stops to my apartment. I sit on the tiny balcony, listening to the buses honking on the Avenue de Maine, watch the sun set over the clay-tiled rooftops and Garmart Panas. Ricardo hasn't shown up for class lately. I am glad to be rid of that one. Another imbecile. I pull a letter out of my bag, then frown at it. Val, I say, look at this. Another boring letter from your man in Minnesota? Not exactly. A newspaper article in French, neatly clipped, wrapped in one blank sheet of paper. I hand it to Valerie. My Allah, quel est bizarre. Who would send this? It's about a woman in Paris who, oh, c'est horrible. Look what happened to her. A bad joke? Some sense of humor, I scan the envelope. No name, no return address. Where was it mailed from? Near the airport. Who do I know out there? I begin getting a letter a day from my secret correspondent. All the same, all gruesome stories of foolish women alone in Paris. Valerie decides I need a vacation for my own safety. My cousin Jean owns a restaurant in Corsica, she tells me. He was poor in Paris, but now he is rich on this island. His hotel sits along White Beach. He likes to thumb his nose at Parisians who come to stay, but he gives me a free room. We go for spring break. She takes a photo of me on the beach, Jean's arm around my shoulders. I am wearing my new black bikini. I try to call Jean, but the connection stutters. 
John is old-fashioned. He doesn't text. I email him a cheerful hello, tell him I will see him soon. Jean is especially kind, and so different from any man I know. Valerie encourages me to take long walks on the beach with him, go out in his boat. I get sunburned and drink too much, but we have a good time. Back in Paris, final exams approach. My nine months almost over. I focus on studying. I have mastered the sauce family. Salmon and papillot, clafoulet. My mail is happily silent, except for John's weekly letters. But I watch the streets below my balcony for anyone in a Yankees cap. By our graduation ceremony, I am not sleeping well. I move to Valerie's flat across town. At night, I stand at her balcony, my elbows resting on the railing, looking at the sunset over the Latin Quarter, where the people below are all unfamiliar. Breads are finished, so I put back on my engagement ring. We're crammed in Valerie's little kitchen and sitting room, overflowing onto the balcony, drinking wine and celebrating her honors degree. Jean from Corsica is here. Her family drove all night from Gourds. My blankets are rolled under the bed, and I have cleared my books and cooking equipment off the kitchen counter to make room for the hors d'oeuvres we've created. Platters of melon wrapped with thin slices of prosciutto, tiny cheese flowers, sweet patisseries, spiced nuts. Jean brings me a glass of wine. Do you look ahead to going back to your Minnesota? Valerie's cousin is tall, with big hands and hair as black as soot. His English is not good, but he makes a wonderful ceviche. When I don't answer, he smiles and one of his teeth glints gold. You could change your plans? Come to Corsica again. We have sun and wind off the sea. Very uncomplicated. Uncomplicated is what I thought I'd find here. I look down, sip a little wine. In Paris, Jean reaches over to brush a strand of hair off from my face. Valerie tells me about this man who sends you letters. He never came to your apartment? Caused you any harm? He couldn't find my apartment, I said. He can't find his way out of a paper bag. Jean looks puzzled. I explain the American slang and he laughs, the tooth glinting again. Corsica would be restful after such an experience. But maybe you are busy here? I think of my Franklin Covey app. Each day it told me the time of my class, my evening engagement, when to sleep. Now it shouts at me with blank boxes. Suddenly I think of John, wonder what day it is, what color shirt he is wearing. I nod toward the kitchen. Valerie's waving a bottle at you. She is telling me we are out of wine. I will go get some more. Do you want to come? You go without me. My mind is full of opposites tonight. The sound of Ricardo sharpening his sheaf of knives. The comforting hum of John's letters. Eh, chérie, you and my cousin Jean have a good talk. Valerie fills my wine glass. And even though I don't want any more, I take a sip. Jean's choice is too young, almost sour. He is very sweet, but he can't pick a good vintage. I know these things now. I set down my glass. Your party is a success, I tell my friend. My mama is happy. That is all that matters, she sighs. Tomorrow we return to Gord's. You will love your job. Being a chef is hard work. She shrugs, philosophical, like so many French women. It is life. What will I do without you? Go back to Corsica.
At my silence, she adds, Come to Gord's. My brothers and I will cook a feast for you. I have to go home. I take another bitter mouthful. Sometime. You long for your John. Valerie taps my engagement ring. Paris did not charm you. Nothing was quite what I expected here, I say. Except the food. That is what we do best, she says. The tiled rooftops of Paris are burnt orange tonight in the setting sun. The tower of Gar Montparnasse flashes like a torch. People walk home, carrying their briefcases and net bags of produce from the street market. Overhead, a lone plane is circling, circling, waiting to land. Look at all those people, I say. I bet they all know where they're going. Valerie shrugs again. It is eight o'clock. They are going home to supper. The drone of the circling plane fades. The pilot banks to approach Orly and home. Might one or two be planning something completely unexpected? Not likely. They are French. We are silent for a moment. Then Valerie points. Marte, look! The man with the long hair. The baseball cap. So he didn't fly back to Chile. I lean over the balcony to get a glimpse of Ricardo. I see him stop someone, gesture to a piece of paper in his hand, point down the street. I am starting to move away from the window, back toward the warmth and laughter of the party, when Valerie asks, Marta, why is Ricardo talking to my cousin Jean? You've just listened to Pilots by Mary Carol Moore, and we have her on the show today to talk about this honorable mention piece in our fall contest. So thank you for joining us on the show today, Mary. I'm thrilled to be here. Great to have you on. And I'm also joined, as always, by my wonderful co-host, Melissa Collings. Hello, Melissa. Hello, everyone. And apologies in advance for my voice. I have a cold. Probably half the people listening at this point might have one of those. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Great. All right, Mary. Well, the first thing we do when we kick off the show is just have us start by you telling us and our listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, I live in southern New Hampshire, about 90 minutes from Boston. Um, I'm lucky enough to actually live on farmland that is a land trust land, which means it's never going to be developed. And Ooh. the house I live in is uh, was built in 1765. So this is Revolutionary War era. That's wow. amazing. Love it. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous place to live. But the houses, you know, as an Cold. old house would be, we have one room. Well, we have a normal heat, but we have one room heated by a gas fireplace. And most of us stay in there all day. <laughs> 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 no but doubt. I have a sunny, sunny art studio where I paint and write. And I, mm. I really love living in New Hampshire. It's a wonderful um, place to live. So... I'm lucky enough to be able to um, kind of, I don't know, orient my days around my art, and the land is very inspiring to me. I bet That's so. That's wonderful. Great. And so when you refer to art, you're referring to visual art and writing, I guess. Yeah, that was something I didn't know about you. I know. You, you didn't put that well. in the bio. <laughs> I was a yeah. painter first. Yeah, I was a painter first, and I got into writing kind of later in life, but... Um, I lived when I lived in France. I went over there to study art, and oh. um, it was an interesting experience because I ended up rooming with this woman from California, 
who was enrolled in the Cordon Bleu, which is the famous French cooking school. And she had a nine-month course that she was attending. And every day she'd come home, she'd be exhausted and she'd smell of garlic and, you know, really be <laughs> overwhelmed with the food smells. And she'd tell me all about the course. And finally, I said, I've got to, I've got to do this. So I was already a foodie at that time, but I got yeah. to sit in on classes. And that's kind of where the story pilots came from, from my own experience at um, one of the Cordon Bleu school I classes. assumed as much. That's yeah. amazing. I think being able to study in France would be amazing in and of itself. But, you know, being in in that environment and everything like that. Can you tell us a little bit about a little bit more about that and how you what drew you to the food most of all? Yeah, I, I mean, I've always been in um, I don't know, it's one of my favorite things in life. But I think it Mind came you. into my family because my grandfather and my father's side was a international lawyer for General Motors and he traveled and lived in, in European countries. And so my father grew up uh, mostly staying home, you know, with the babysitter, but um, hit the influence of my, my grandparents in his life got him really into food. So when he married my mother, who was from Kansas and kind of normal, um, everyday cook, he, he introduced us, the whole family, to this uh, kind of European cuisine, not just French, but that was his favorite. So mm. from very, very young, I was um, eating things like... Uh, Oh, God, I don't want to gross you guys out, but things like <laughs> tongue, a whole tongue, you know, or um, these cuts of meat that I've never heard of and um, just wonderful foods and sauces and everything. And we'd go out to eat and my dad would order these unusual things. And so my palate got trained from a very young age to mm. appreciate taste and yeah. the, the sensory experience of food. That's fantastic. You know, most Americans don't eat things like tongue and but I've uh, no. in, in my studies, those things are super healthy for you. Were you able to like how do you do that in the US? Do you still eat like that? Um, I eat really healthy, but no, not really. I, I think some of the food over the years, you know, being in the restaurant business and being a chef and then being a food writer, I was a syndicated columnist for the LA Times for 12 years and That's amazing. wrote for food and wine and all these different publications. But I got kind of saturated with the, um, I'm going to call it the gourmet side of food, the more uh, taste for taste alone kind of thing. Mm. And eventually, as I got older and got more, um, I guess my taste got a little more sophisticated. I started to like simpler things, a little bit less of the high-end foods. So the stuff my, yeah, my father was really into the, you know, do the most extravagant. <laughs> and we didn't have very much money, which is a joke, actually, looking back. But the whole idea of, of having the most elaborate dish you could have. But now my my diet's not like that at all. But I enjoy really fresh local produce, for instance, or local meats and yeah. very simply made. Right. Nice. Wow. Well, one of the first things we do like to talk about is the story a little bit. And you did talk about kind of your inspiration for it or some of the ideas, you know, with your friend. Uh, but I guess one question I have is what difference is there between writing for food magazines and your experience with that as a chef and writing like fiction like this piece yeah really different completely different um 
the best way I could describe it is that food writing is a bit about, there are two parts to it to me. It's about creating a, an allure with the senses so that the reader will enter the sensory experience of the food and mm. then want to try the recipe. That's the whole game, really. And it then the other part of food writing is the how-to. It's the step-by-step, -step, which is a very big part of, um, if you're a professional food writer, you have to have everything tested and retested and you know organized. So fiction doesn't have that. Um, but I use that lyrical type of writing, that um, sensory writing that I developed as a food writer in my memoir and fiction, because I felt the sensory experience of a character or narrator, how they perceived the world through the senses was a great entry into story, Definitely. which is kind of how Pilots was developed, is the whole idea of the, the sensual experience of food and what it's like to be engaged in cooking it and learning yeah. about it. So um, I overused my lyrical writing in the very beginning of writing fiction. <laughs> you know, like a lot of us, we, oh, we yeah. do what we do, and then we do too much of it. So I had to learn how to dial it back. Oh, interesting, but it's yeah. Still, it, you know, it's still really important to me and, and kind of the key to my writing right now. That's great. Yeah. Well, and you teach some writing courses, correct? I have for 20 years, yeah. I've retired, actually, as of this year, but... Um, I taught for about four different schools in the U.S. and did a lot of um, online classes and yeah. then Zoom and then in person as well. But yeah, my, my uh, writing classes were about uh, book structuring. So I was um, teaching people how to plan and write and develop their books, like how do you start with an idea and then how do you structure it into a certain flow that works for the reader. So that was the kind of niche that I had as a teacher. That's, That's great. great. Yeah. How, so how did you get started in that? Because you said you came late to fiction. I'm very curious of how you started teaching it. You know, I did food writing for most of my adult life. I lived in California. I ran a restaurant. And I had a cooking school there and everything. Um, that was kind of a successful career. But then I, I moved to the Midwest, got married, moved to the Midwest, and I got cancer. And um, it was pretty serious breast cancer. And I basically everything was full stop at that point. Yeah. And cancer, wow. I don't know, you know, maybe some of your listeners or yourselves have had that experience. But um, a life-threatening illness will make you often revision your life, you know, mm -hmm, basically right. look at what you've done so far and what you haven't done and why. And one thing that I realized, although I had this hugely successful career, in food writing, um, it was driving my writing, and it wasn't the only thing I wanted to do in this lifetime. So I realized how much, you know, I read like crazy. I'm a fiction nut. So mm. I thought, I really want to learn how to write fiction. And that is what, you know, cancer was the vehicle for me to actually, I went back to college, back to grad school, got my MFA, nice. and wrote my first novel, and it got published. And so the process of um, transforming my life via the illness took me away from the and I said goodbye to all those incredible contracts for cookbooks and yeah. articles. Wow. It was hard to turn away from all of that because it was so lucrative and it was something I knew very well and I had a niche, but it wasn't where my heart was. Wow. And so you made the choice to just shut the door on that completely. It seemed like, it, what, yeah. did you consider the opportunity of 
I don't know, keeping one, like keeping a foot in the door, <laughs> as it were? I thought about it. Um, yeah, I did. Actually, an agent that I was working with said, you know, I would I would represent you in a heartbeat if you were doing food writing again. You know, oh, so yeah, it was like right. everybody wanted to, me to do food writing because I had this whole platform. You know, everything was pretty. I'd won awards and stuff. So sure, I, I was wow. so happy to be able to say no. I know it sounds really strange, but the, the freedom of actually doing something that wasn't just driven by the success or the money or the... Um, you know, the fact that I had achieved something, I really wanted to explore a new thing that I didn't know how to do, which mm -hmm. was fiction. I had no clue. I thought it translates, you know, I thought I'm a writer, I'm a professional writer, I'll just write a story. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> oh, different. Oh God, very, very different. And that's been a, a real learning curve for me, but a wonderful one too. Yeah. And what was your first book? You said your first book was published. Did yeah. you have an agent at that time? No, I had an agent for my food writing, and um, I had two agents actually. One retired, and then I got a second one. But my second agent and I didn't get along, so we were—I was between agents at that point. And after my MFA program, I thought, well, what the heck? I'm just going to try to sell this myself, because okay. I kind of knew how to do it from having agent. Yeah. And I sold it myself. I sold it to a small publisher. It was called Qualities of Light, and it's about a, a young woman who's 16 who falls in love with her best friend during the summer where her younger brother is in a boating accident she caused. Oh, wow. And so he hovers between life and death. He's in a coma. And she's questioning, really, um, whether she deserves any happiness. And mm. if she can go ahead and, and involve herself with this other person at the same time as she's caused the possible death of her younger brother. So I really wanted to struggle with those ideas of what is deserved happiness and yeah. what do we have to do to pay back something like that? Do we have to give up our own lives? So that was kind of a cool and difficult yeah. <laughs> thing to launch into, you know, my first book. So, but that's, yeah. that was, um, that was qualities of light. Well, I love the premise and the title. That's terrific. I do too. Thank you. Yeah. Um, it sounds it's, fascinating. Yeah. It's funny. I'm writing very similar, a book right now, um, very similar topics. Um, really? it, it, I love that kind of gray area. I love setting in that space where, you know, we're flawed people. And a lot of times in the books we read, there's there's a flaw that people have, but it's not really major issues where, you know, it's white and black. The bad guy's the bad guy and the good guy's the good guy. But I love those morally gray characters where it's like you you're a good person, but you've done something that's not so great. And and I, I love too. Yeah, I, I love those concepts. So yeah, that's that's fascinating. So you did that on your own. And yeah. then what happened after that? Well, um I was kind of high on it for a while, you know. Um, <laughs> it got nominated for a Penn Faulkner Award, which is Wow. Was like Oh, you're kidding. I got on NPR and I got in, in um, the New York Times. And, oh, my goodness. You know, it was, it was really, it was great. It was like, okay, wow, I have a career. But then I don't really, you know. Then I, I'm thinking, okay, well, what do I do now? What do I do now? So yeah. I wanted to write a sequel, you know, because I liked the characters. Like five years later, what would happen? Mm. So I did that and I, I just could not sell it. Um, I, I tried and tried and tried and could not get anywhere with any of it. So I realized I know nothing about this industry. Fiction wow. is so different from the food writing. 
I have no connections. I have nothing. So I, mm -hmm. I decided to, to try to find another agent. This would have been my third agent. And it took me um, nine months and 40 queries before I found somebody. So wow, that's it, shocking to me. I know. It's hard. I mean, you think, you know, I have all these credentials, but I didn't right. really in the, in the fiction world. So it's well, shocking how... that it took that long or you're shocked that it took that little time. <laughs> Which one? Me? Well, I mean, considering that you had uh, a book that was so highly regarded, it would right. be shocking to me that it'd be hard to find another agent that would take yes. you on. I know. Well, my, my book was a niche. It was a... Um, it's a queer book, you know, because it's two girls that fall in love. And that, at the time, was oh, not necessarily as open right. um, as a topic. And, I mean, actually, okay. when I first started shopping that book after I finished writing it, before I found the publisher, I was told by agents that this is a topic that's not selling. Now, that was only... Oh, interesting. Like, can, you, can you believe that? It was 2009. Yeah. So it's not that long ago. But right. that was, that was you know, 12... What, I can't do the math. Fourteen years yeah. ago, it was just not a, t a topic that people were were banking on, and now, of course, it's not not an issue. But that that was me between the gap the gaps of the industry, you know. Right. So I wasn't able to, you know, I just didn't have very very much success with that, and so I moved into more straight stories and tried to be more acceptable, you know, not trying not. I don't know what you call it, setting aside my goals and my personal values. No, I didn't do that. But I started to write about a more broad range of characters, not just gay characters, and see if I could get more of a, you know, more of an entry into the world of the publishing. Mm. It was hard, though. It's a very tough, tough world right now, yeah. especially. It's very true. Yeah. Well, Melissa's got an agent and uh, going through that process right now. Yes. It, it has been a tough process and a long, long waiting game. Yes. Yeah. I tell people that nine months isn't isn't very long, actually. Yeah, it's very true. You have to have a thick skin and mm. you, you have to ha be very patient. And, and, you know, it's funny that people will – I will tell them about books. I've written five books. And so when, you know, they, they hear about the books, they're like, oh, You've just said, you know, you're trying to get it published, but they hear about your books. I'm like, well, where can I find it? I'm like, well, you can't find it anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's funny. There's it's it's like, yeah, I know I've been working on this for a very long time and it's hopefully it will pay off. But it does. It takes a long time. It's very, you know, it's very challenging and you have to really want it. And you do you have to really love what you're doing. And I I always feel like the writing itself, the process of writing has to be primary for me, not the yeah. selling of the writing. Mm -hmm. Yes, 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 yes. Well, so tell us about your writing process. I assume it's different than obviously for the food writing than the fiction writing, but are you a plotter? Do you map it out? A discovery writer? How do you go? I'm a little of both. I, I love the whole pants of plotter idea, but I usually start with a storyboard um, like filmmakers use, which is just a series of cartoon boxes lined up. And I do index cards or post-it notes to kind of capture the plot point that I'm I'm going to be working with, an idea. It doesn't have to be solid yet. And then on a big poster board, I'll actually arrange them um, to draft a rough plot. 
And these are the turning points of the story. So then I moved to writing dialogue, which is my favorite thing in fiction to write, or setting, because that comes from the sensory background, depending on the story's focus. Like Pilots was about food. So I began with food descriptions and what the students were learning and cooking. And then I moved into the dialogue, and I wanted it to be very sharp, because the contrast between the language, sensory, relaxation of the food, you know, the the kind of bathing in it, and then Mm. the sharp dialogue that was very cutting, which is very French, actually. Yeah. Mm. And I wanted to play with those two things. So I I start with the storyboard, which is definitely a plotter, and then I go into pantsing. Fascinating. Yeah, that sounds good. That seems like a reasonable approach. Yes, I agree. Yeah. And I I kind of enjoyed in Back to Pilots for one second, the... um, the switch from sort of the smooth, romantic Ricardo to the psycho. <laughs> yeah. So, I thought that was an interesting uh, switch as well. Uh, yeah. I I I want to tell a tiny story about where where that um, that switch came from. When I went to one of these Cordoba classes, the thing I was struck by was how little the translator actually translated the chef. In other words, huh. the chef was standing there and doing the whole pat, you know, patter in French, which I understood. And then the translator was an English woman. She was translating for the Americans and the English-speaking people. But she cut out all the humor, all the, like, little asides. He'd make oh. uh, really nasty ones. And so I wanted to have that be part of the um, the kind of the... You know, we were talking earlier, Melissa, about gray areas, but there's this gray area about the the uh, elegance and the fascination with food and the, you know, luxury of it. The corn bleu, you know, pound yeah. of butter, right? So <laughs> then the the other side of it is when I was living there, Americans weren't very popular, and the French would make these snide remarks about the Americans all the time, and they really? thought I didn't understand, but I did. But oh wow! So I wanted to play on that, the back and forth between the dark side of, you know, that type of uh, environment and then the shiny, glittery side, the romantic right. side. Yeah. Ah. I did, yeah, because you mentioned that in the story about how they weren't translating um, all of it, but I didn't know what the asides were. So can you give us an example of one that the French... Oh, God. Or, you know, just a, just a <laughs> concept. <Long> not... <laughs> well, I do remember the chef saying something like, well, the Americans would never... Um, you know, he was talking about the audience, right? He'd say... The Americans would never understand the subtleties of this seasoning, you know, um, something like that. Oh, wow. This this guy's so full of it, but he was was an egotist, and so he's just chefs, you know, chefs. Yeah. (laughs) Much as I love them and have been one. (laughs) Yes, exactly, exactly. Oh, that's funny. I hear that there are, we have a reputation as Americans in Europe, apparently, which makes me curious, you know. I, I haven't been to Europe, and... Um, so, and I, I took French in high school and then w- my husband and I have started taking Duolingo and, uh, and brushing mm. up on French in the hopes of one day going, cause it sounds fun, but you hear those, it, it makes me nervous to go mm-hmm. and yeah. things like that. You know, when you hear those little comments of how Americans are perceived, it's like, Ugh, I don't. It's changed I, a lot, though. I think it's nice it? now. It? Yeah, I think we're we're as a country a little, except for our politics are not really well respected over there. But 
I think that as a, as a country, we're very much different than it was when I was living there. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. Hmm. Well, back to the writing a little bit. What are your favorite subjects to write about? Oh, this is a good question. I don't think I think about that. It yeah. just comes out. But when I started to try to list them, uh, the first thing that came was flying. My mom was a pilot. And okay. I I, ah. I really love all things about flying. So a lot of my stories are about flying. And you notice Pilots does have a section in where Ricardo is a pilot, amateur, mm -hmm. yeah. and gets lost. So flying's usually a, a big part of my writing. And then food, of course. And then yes. um, big surprise there. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> I think I'm really interested in intergenerational relationships, like when a younger ah. woman saves an older woman in some way. So many of my stories are about younger people uh, coming into someone's life and giving them a, a, an escape or a rescue in, an, in a surprising way. So oh, like the that. intergenerational um, I don't know, interaction is fascinating to me. Yeah. That's terrific. Well, what are you working on now? Well, right now I am uh, compiling my short stories into a book, and I hope that I'll be able to publish that. And it's harder to get published short story collections. I also have two books right now that are being shopped by my agent. So we hope, you know, it's a, it's a long wait, but we hope that something gets picked up. Now, I'm curious because I'm soon going to have this question myself for my agent. Are you, is your agent shopping both of your novels at the same time? No, she shopped one and then we put it on pause. Uh, we got wonderful feedback. Um, I was just really impressed with the editor's feedback. And so a rewrite was needed. And so that's okay. you know, on pause. Then the other one, which is my third novel, is the one that's out there right now. So I don't think that two at once is possible, but I don't I don't know enough about the industry to, to answer really. Okay. Interesting. And so what does your typical writing day look like when you make time for writing? I know you're retired at this point, correct? Mm hmm So tell us how your day is filled with, with writing because you said you put that on the front burner. Yes. Um, that and painting. So I go back and forth. Oh, I love Ooh. painting. Well, I I love this. Yeah, I, I have a studio in in our old house, <laughs> and it's um, an art room and a writing room. So nice. I get a dedicated two hours every day away from my family. Um, nice. I don't know if this is true for other women, but a lot of times women have a harder time freeing themselves up from responsibilities no, to definitely. actually go and write. Hmm. So I, I feel like I've negotiated that well. And Nice. I can actually have that time, whether I do anything with it that's good. <laughs> that's the question. But at least <laughs> that's always I'll the question, right? <laughs> yeah, I'll sit down and I'll and I have an editor I work with, a freelance editor that I work with, and two writing groups. So I get to, um, you know, get feedback and then work with that feedback. So I have something to sit down with every time, and and actually work on. And then the rest of the day, I don't know. The story work goes on all the time. You might understand this yeah. in my head. So I take notes as I go. And sometimes being away from the writing itself gives me the ideas. I, I take walks as often as I can so that walking is a good uh, way for me to process the story problem. 
and get yes. an idea of what to do next. I've heard that a lot where people do some sort of exercise that jiggles jiggles ideas to come out onto the page. I like that. I also really like the fact that you carve out two hours and you said your family knows that those two hours are yours. Yeah. I think I think that's really as important as um, I know as a mom myself, I've had to set up those expectations because if you don't, people will eat your time. Oh. And and it's not that you don't want them to, but I think it's very important to have those if you want it. I mean, some people might not want it, but I know I do because I'll feel guilty. Mm-hmm. And so to avoid my guilt, you set up this this hour is mine. Everybody knows it. And it's not a big deal at that point. You don't have that guilt anymore. And everybody um, has that understanding. So I think that's really great. And it brings me to another question that um, I'm prying into your life a bit. Uh, <laughs> I love doing that. Yeah. yeah, I always do that. I always ask the most personal questions, but this really isn't that personal. You, you've kind of mentioned, is your family close? Are you living with a lot of people? No, I have my spouse and our adult son is um, grown up. He's in California. He's a chef, actually. Oh, and, nice. Um, I wonder why. Great. Yeah. But, you know, this is we, we're past the stage of, of young children in the house, but we have two puppies and we just um, I don't know why, but <laughs> I had to have dogs. I love dogs and I hadn't had them for years. And now I have two puppies and it's basically like having two toddlers. It's right. <laughs> I never grow up. <laughs> I never imagined. I never imagined. They're very cute and I love them tremendously, but they, they shadow me. They say, uh, I hope this is OK to say on air, but. Once you get certain kinds of dogs, you never pee alone. They go into the bathroom with you. <laughs> so, That's you know, children, yeah. oh gosh, you know, and then when I shut myself into my office, I can hear for uh, another 10 minutes, I'll hear the whining outside the door and the scratching and stuff. So, oh my it's, gosh, it's like a little, it's like a little person. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Very true. Oh wow, my goodness. Fun. That's so funny. Well, these are great. Well, we are coming up on time here. So, uh, I don't know, maybe a couple of questions here before we wrap it up. Um, so, you mentioned you like to read a lot. What are some of your favorite genres and or authors? Oh, yes. This is hard to do. I have so many. <laughs> um, I like to read more than one book at once. And uh, right now, I always find it interesting when people yeah, do that. I love it. So I'm reading, uh, again, um, Catherine May's book called Wintering. She's an English writer, and she's writing about hmm. the value of rest in difficult times. And Ah, uh, that's a good book. Um, that sounds like I, a very good book. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. And the new Frederick Bachman, um, who wrote A Man Called Ove, uh, he has a new book out that I'm reading, and I'm... Um, rereading some favorites because it's holidays, you know, we're snowed in, so I yeah. get to go to... Peter Heller is one of my favorite authors. He's a thriller writer, but just such a good writer. And Louise Erdrich, of course, um, her last book, The Night Watchman, was just phenomenal. So I get to reread some of this. So you really are all over the place. I am. I, I have I've everything. <laughs> yes. Um, I was on social media, and there was somebody who was saying that read everything you can get your hands on in your genre and not in your genre um but that it's even almost better to read outside of your genre because that can inspire different things in your own writing well it gives a different perspective yeah Mm -hmm. 
I think that makes the writing more more sharp or sharper. Is that that's the per- yeah. correct pronunciation? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, great. All right, Mary. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Our last question that we've been asking forever and ever, it seems like. <laughs> it's a great it, question. It's a good question. And I hope that our listeners are enjoying it. Um, but share a piece of writing advice or resources that you have come across that have been helpful um, to our aspiring listeners, writer listeners, as it were. Well, this is not a new idea, but one of my favorite ways to really get a character or location or even story idea is to create a vision board which uses photos from magazines or the internet. And I do this every time I begin a novel or short story. I spend about an hour gathering images and then arrange them on a poster board or a bulletin board or wall in a way that's pleasing to me. And I write to it, especially when I'm stuck. I'll write to it, write by describing one of the images. And often my subconscious has accessed an element of the story that I didn't see, but it appears on the board. So that's a really fun thing to do, especially with the holidays, if you have time to uh, sit around by the fire and, you know, either go to a great website like Upsplash is a good one for images or, you know, a magazine that's lying around just tear out stuff and, and try to create something that will be an inspiring vision board for your story. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, well, and yeah. it ties into your painting you know i mean you're very you seem to be a very visual hands-on kind of writer as it were i mean that's using the actual tactile things you can move around that's a lot different than um i I guess maybe the majority of writers today maybe not i don't know i'm just guessing but a lot of stuff is done digitally now you know i think it's so cool that you just kind of go to the write it down stick it on the wall that's very cool I, I like yeah. that, too. It makes me think of the police procedurals, you know, where they create the, um, what do you call it? I don't even know what it's called, but like the victim board where how yes. everything connects and, <laughs> and that, right. you know, and I, I think that's really, um, I've done a little bit of that digitally, uh, like on Pinterest, you know. It's making, not the same, though. It, it isn't. And so you make me, because you're seeing it all that you, I have to go to Pinterest and, you know, pull it up and all mm-hmm. that. But if you have it right in front of you, you can think about it. And I, my places where my people are houses apartments wherever they shift and change because Mm -hmm. i don't have a solid floor plan in my mind so i'm like wait a minute this doesn't actually fit together what does this house look like so i think that's a fantastic idea to actually put it on a piece of poster board or you know like somewhere where you can see it all the time and i imagine that would give you more ideas too and fill in like you said in your subconscious very cool yeah, or, that's great. You know, a, a map of the place that you're writing. I had to do yeah. a drawing of a farmhouse that I was writing a, a book about because I had no idea. And I, yeah. I like you said, I, I had them entering through the wrong door. And, right. you know, so right. I actually drew a map, like a, a architect's drawing of it. And I put it up on my wall. I said, You follow this. <laughs> I yeah, like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That's really great. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know someone yep. who did do a drawing of a floor plan, did a floor plan. And I thought that's. You know, you think you're going to remember those things. No. But, you, yeah, no, yeah. you don't, especially <laughs> when there's multiple houses. And there's going to be some reader out there who's like, wait a minute. You just said there was a back door. And, I you know. know. And right, it's like, exactly. Well, the kitchen's not off to the right. You're yeah. Wrong. It's like, yeah, that, yeah. Magical house? What's going on here? <laughs> it's like, don't, the readers, don't worry about that. They catch that stuff. They really they do. do. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, they mm-hmm. should. That's good. You're right. Because yeah. you're really immersing them. If you're doing it right, then they should do that, right? Mm-hmm. 
fun. Uh, All right. Well, I think with that, we are out of time. And it's been a real pre- pleasure, Mary, talking to you. And yes. getting to know you a little bit on the show. Thank and you. Thank you so much for submitting uh, your story. And congratulations again on getting honorable mention. And we're really thank excited you. to get this on the website and out to the world. Great. Thanks so much. Yes, it was a pleasure meeting you and good luck with all of your books and submissions. Yeah, and you too. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If so, please help us spread the word by telling your friends or giving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Those reviews really make a difference. We'd like to thank the folks at Literature and Latte, the makers of Scrivener, for sponsoring the podcast and providing an amazing tool for writers. If you'd like to take your writing to the next level and use a tool designed for writers by writers, then give Scrivener a try. What have you got to lose? The Story Discovery Podcast is a free narrated podcast of the works that appear in Etched Onyx Magazine. Edited by J.W. McAteer, all stories and poems are available for free at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you'd like to support the continuation of this podcast and or the magazine, please consider a small donation through Patreon at patreon.com slash onyxpublications. As a nano publishing house, we are always looking for new works to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story or poem for consideration, please visit the submissions page on our website. In the meantime, keep reading and writing.